Welcome to From the Booth, the weekly podcast sponsored by BYU's International Cinema Program. I'm Chip Oscarson, Director for International Cinema. We've made it to the end of another semester here at IC. Remarkable both for the interest in the program as well as for the unique circumstances surrounding the COVID virus that moved us online for the last four weeks of the semester. This is our Week in Review episode for Week 14 of the Winter 2020 program. Today I'll host special guests to discuss the films that stream between the 6th and the 11th of April as part of our virtual schedule. Because these films have already played, we'll talk about them with no spoiler alerts, so feel free to use the time codes in the program notes if you need to skip forward. The films we'll be talking about today include Funan, a weighty animated film in French from 2018 by Denis Do, set in the late 1970s Cambodia against the atrocities committed by the Khmer Rouge. Tell me with this, I will have with me Professor Dana Bourgerie from Asian and Near Eastern Languages. Next, the Academy Award documentary feature from 2019, Honeyland in Macedonian and Turkish by directors Tamara Kutevska and Yubomir Stefanov about the close connection between nature and humanity. It's the last in our semester-long series, Anthropocene Cinema, and I'll be discussing this with icy faithful entomologist Dr. Riley Nelson from Biology. Then, with Professor Doug Weatherford of Spanish, I'll be talking about Too Late to Die Young from 2018, the third feature from filmmaker Dominga Sotomayor Castillo, a semi-autobiographical look at growing up in a society making an uneasy transition from dictatorship to democracy, set shortly after the fall of the Pinochet regime in Chile. And then finally, fellow IC directors Mark Yamada and Mariler Oscarson will be here to talk about Tokyo Godfathers, a Japanese animated film from 2003 by Satoshi Kon about the unlikeliest of ad hoc families on the streets of Tokyo during a Christmas holiday. And then we'll wrap up with some of our reflections back on the semester. To start off today, to discuss the movie Funan, I have Professor Dana Bourgerie from the Department of Asian and Near Eastern Languages. He's a Chinese specialist who for the last few years has been re- researching Sino-Cambodian connections and languages, and notably has helped initiate an ambitious Cambodian oral history project. Welcome to the IC Podcast, Dana. Thank you. Uh, why don't we start by having you tell us a little bit about the oral history project that you're involved with? Yeah, this project started uh, about five years ago when I was in Cambodia on leave looking at the language of the diaspora there. I study the Chinese diaspora communities around Southeast Asia. And I noticed that when I was doing my background interviews that very few people knew anything about their family at all. And this sort of one thing led to another. And I raised this possibility of an oral history project with the Humanity Center of BYU and uh, in short order went through. And so we collect stories of all sorts, uh, usually intergenerational stories. So the you, the younger people will interview their parents and grandparents. And while it's not per se on the Khmer Rouge event, it often comes to that because that was part of an intense part of their, their history at the time. Well, and as the movie suggests, you know, did a lot to disrupt family structures and social networks and the kinds of things that would have helped maintain a kind of continuity with history, right? It really did. And also there was a lot of uh, Khmer Rouge destroyed a lot of family records too. And that was one way of pacification that's happened in a lot of places. It happened in Taiwan when the Japanese occupied the the island in, of Taiwan. And, and so lots of times that's one way to to destroy the spirit, especially in Asian culture where, where it's so important to have that ancestral connection. 
That's right. Well, why don't you start by giving us a little bit of historical background to the the context of Funan and the Khmer Rouge Revolution and what that was, you know, in in essence all about. That the movie is interesting in that it drops us right down in the middle of it without giving us much details, right? That doesn't seem to be what it's most interested in is the this led to this led to this. No, we we kind of are like those characters finding ourselves in a in a sense in the middle of it all. No, it, it I think assumes a fair a knowledge of the Khmer Rouge, but it doesn't depend on it because I think the story itself, we know that right away that there's this conflict. And it's the Khmer Rouge was, it starts out at the beginning, I think 1975, mm-hmm. where we went on the march. They emptied Phnom Penh, the capital, very quickly within days. They just told people that they had to leave. They didn't tell them why. And, and you get that in the film as well, too. And so they're just on this journey that was not really ending and of course in the film they talk about this a lot where you know where are we going what why are we doing this and they don't know so the uncertainty was made it even more intense with respect to the name funan it's interesting because this is the old chinese name for the one of the early Khmer or cambodian kingdoms that included parts of thailand all of vietnam and also southern vietnam or yeah southern vietnam now why, why do you think he chose the name Funan for the for the story? I mean, he has a Chinese connection himself, the director, Dennis Doe, right? Yeah, he does. He, he doesn't quite say it, but I think he implies it in the press kit. And the name is also suggestive of that. And a lot of the Sino-Cambodians were hit very hard in the Khmer Rouge, uh, not so much because of their ethnicity, but they were relatively better educated in that they, they had a little more substance. In the film, mm-hmm. that, that hints at that as well, that they were sort of bourgeois or counter-revolutionary because of their their belongings. And they several times they had, you know, they showed that they had material things that they brought with them for, for purposes. But I think that's that part of that identity of being a Sino-Cambodian during that period was especially intense. Right. That This is the group that the Khmer Rouge is a kind of a, a certain kind of Marxist revolution they targeted, you know, bourgeois culture. They targeted people of means, you know, educated people who, you know, who were not perceived to be part of the proletariat. Um, right. And, and it's, it, what's interesting about it is Pol Pot, who was the leader of the Khmer Rouge uh, radical Marxist movement, was himself a Sino-Cambodian. So, oh, interesting. Yeah. And so, but they, you know, they, they were hit very hard for that reason, for their relative their sort of class background. Now, the the film is animated. This film would is a difficult film. I mean, it deals with all kinds of of really difficult situations, harrowing situations. It would be very different if they tried to make this as a as a live action, right? That you you commit yourself to a kind of a visceral detail that would be really really uncomfortable. For you, did this work as a strategy to to animate it, or what was the effect of of making a story like this animated? Oh, it worked very well for me. I mean, it 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 would have been so intense; it's almost be unwatchable. And as we've done these stories for the the Cambodian Oral History Project, uh, there are some there that I just can't imagine. Even describing them are hard enough to to yeah. actually dramatize. It would be unthinkable. It couldn't. It would be hard to watch. And so the animation worked for me, and and it was beautiful anim- animation as well. And and yet that was the the strange contrast, right? That that you're yeah. telling this horrendous story against the backdrop of this beautiful Cambodian portrayal. 
Denny Doe, who is the director and the the animator, the writer for for this film, he he bases this on his own research. He was born in France, but he bases this on research that he did into the situation, particularly the experience of his mother. Um, so it's it's animating. You know, there's something you know biographic about the film, although I I don't think that there's necessarily a one to one relationship. One thing that really strikes me about what's represented is all of the characters are placed in very morally compromising situations. Uh, he makes a, in a press kit, there's an interview with him and, and he, he makes this comment that there's, you know, good and evil is not the point. It does not, it meaning the film does not judge uh, nor blame. It tries to understand. Uh, and I think you see this well represented that it's, I mean, of, of course, the Khmer Rouge come off as the bad guys. I don't know that he's trying to excuse that in any sort of way. But this idea that good and evil is not is not the issue in, in here. It's just a, an attempt to understand what was going on. Right. And and I mean, the other the other the way this plays out is is they were put in positions where they had to do horrible things to survive or to 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 deal with the separation of the daughter or the son, rather and to even to live and to survive. And this is a hard for anyone to judge what one would do if, if they were put in those kind of context. And so I think that's the other side of this. It's just the idea that how, how you would deal with that. I don't think we really know. Yeah, that's absolutely. How, how does guilt function as you've been collecting these oral histories? Is there a kind of guilt that comes this? I mean, we think we refer to it sometimes as survivor's guilt, right? That we are alive, that we exist because people went through this, but I didn't participate in it. I, why did I survive when others succumbed? Um, yeah, is this well, something we, you see a lot? Well, we hear a lot in, in the interviews or, in, or even outside the interviews talking to people is that it was so common that it's just hard to even imagine. I spoke with a woman, a Sino-Cambodian woman recently who I said, did you lose people during that period? And she says seven. And just to lose one in this context would be unthinkable for most of us, but to say seven. And I said, how do you feel? And she was just, it was just a certain flat affect. She couldn't really express it. And uh, so one of the things is we found it that they're very hard to even talk about until recently. One person came in and said, wanted to name the survivors, or I'm sorry, wanted to name the people he had lost. And it was the first time he had ever done that in Mm. 50 years. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. This film is done from the position of someone who who didn't grow up in Cambodia, and it's done in French, interestingly enough. Uh, what do you make of that decision uh, to to do it all in French as opposed to trying to translate it back into Cambodian? Yeah, and I and I know French myself because that's my heritage language, so I appreciate it in French as well, and it is subtitled. But I think it's the story of of a per individual, and I think he tells his own story, and his own story is is a Sino. Cambodian French story and I think it works perfectly to me uh, and I don't think he could have done it any other way yeah that it would have lost a certain kind of authenticity perhaps uh, interesting in, in the individual side of it these are individual stories even though they're part of a large larger event just like we have 5,000 interviews in our project and everyone's a little different well, Professor Dana Borgeri, thank you so much for being with us and uh, sharing your insights and thoughts. You're a unique resource here in that you, um, you know, have understand this context better than most. It was my pleasure to be here.
Joining me today to talk about Too Late to Die Young, we have Professor Doug Weatherford from the Spanish Department. Doug is no stranger to the podcast. He's been here before. He's a specialist, particularly on film in Mexico. Uh, his research agenda uh, for the last few years has focused on the relationship between film and literature. This summer, and again this fall, he's going to be teaching a class on cinematic connections between the U.S. and Mexico. Doug, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having Welcome me. Welcome back to the podcast. You're, you've been here numerous times. Uh, Doug, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about this class that you're going to be teaching uh, this summer and then again this fall. Okay. Yeah, you bet. Uh, this is a class that uh, is uh, has a born out of a current research project, or at least a project that I'm going to be working on over the next few years. And that is uh, looking at connections between uh, film industries in Mexico and the United States. In particular, I'm looking at North Americans who cross the border into Mexico to make film and uh, also Mexican uh, cineasts who cross the border into the United States. And so it's a class that will, uh, you know, look at John Ford, John Houston, John Wayne, the various Johns. All the Johns. Uh, back as well. uh, but also, you know, look at some of the great cineasts of Mexico, like Gabriel Figueroa and Emilio Fernandez and Dolores del Rio. So it's a fun class. And I think one of the unique things about it is that in this day and age, we have a tendency to to suggest that the connections between Mexico and the United States are constantly at odds. And that's certainly true in many respects. And my class doesn't try to be naive about some of the conflicts between that long border that we share. But the purpose of the class really is to look at some of the positive connections that exist and existed between Mexico and the United States, this respect for each other's cultures that is visible in some of the film projects from the 20th century to the contemporary moment. That sounds really exciting. Uh, It's in Spanish. It's taught in Spanish. Is that right? Uh, the class is taught in Spanish, but because we'll watch a number of Hollywood films, uh, we'll see a lot of films in English. Okay, good. So if you want to be part of this class, you better brush up on your on your Spanish <laughs> before this fall. Well, Doug, thanks for being here to talk about Too Late to Die Young. This is the third feature uh, by Chilean filmmaker Domingo Sotomayor Castillo, and it's very loosely autobiographical uh, from what we can find by looking at interviews and whatnot about what it meant to grow up at a particular moment in Chile's history. What's interesting to me, though, is that there is something that very, I mean, we know that we're in the past in in this film, that there's things that that mark that, the technology used and, you know, the style and, and things like that. And yet it's not about a particular moment at the same time. Maybe that's a good place to start with this. Yeah, you bet. I I mean, the the reality is that it is very universal and uh, perhaps timeless, like you're suggesting. There are a few markers in the film. Uh, for example, the, some of the songs that are played on the radio and on tape recordings in the background can help you kind of place it. But uh, the director, Domingo Sotomayor, has suggested that this film should be placed in 1990, And uh, there's, for example, one particular uh, song, uh, The Eternal Flame, right? That's right. (laughs) I think it was was my high school. (laughs) So, right. So that uh, it's contemporary or close to contemporary to the moment of the film. And uh, and she has, uh, I believe, suggested that it is 1990, which is a really important date in Chilean history and is the date when the dictator Pinochet steps down from power 
and uh, it would be uh, a few months into the future, right? The film takes place uh, right over the break, school break, uh, and leading up to uh, the New Year's Eve. And I believe he steps down in March. So it's slightly before the dictatorship has ended. But uh, what's interesting about the film is that it has a very concrete connection to Chilean history, and yet most of those concrete connections are wiped out of the film. So, for example, Pinochet is never named within the film. and uh, right. But it represents a moment of transition for Chile. And I kind of like to see the film as perhaps a bookend for another really popular Chilean film, the, which was No by uh, Pablo Larraín, who created this film precisely about the event, the plebiscite election in 1988, that would lead to Pinochet being forced to step down two years later in 1990. And so if that film kind of looks at the process, the political process that will have him removed, this one kind of takes in, at least in a very vague way, perhaps that moment leading back to the return of democracy in Chile. Yeah. So in a lot of ways, I mean, we benefit from historical hindsight and that we see this as a, you know, a relatively smooth process, right? Kind of moving back into democracy. But of course, for the people who were there and experiencing it at the time, there's a lot of uncertainty about what that's going to mean, right? Is this a real, you know, kind of moving away from, you know, the dictatorship? Is this, is there going to be a crackdown? Is there going to be a backlash? Is it right? All of that kind of uncertainty that would have surrounded that kind of event is a little bit lost to us. You know, when we look back, you know, after several decades and see that in a lot of ways, and certainly not in all ways, it was successful, though, right, in preserving a, a stable society. But insofar that it, that it is looking at this particular moment, it, that sounds a lot like what it means to be an adolescent moving into adulthood, right? That's a transition that's hopefully going to go smooth. It goes smooth for some people, but it doesn't, you know, there's a lot of uncertainties and it doesn't go smoothly for everyone. It can be disastrous even. It feels like there's, uh, you know, by setting this right at the holidays from from Christmas into New Year's, that it's all about change and transition. Exactly. And, uh, you know, perhaps before we uh, talk about uh, that topic, which is one of the primary ones of the film, you know, it's an, it's an initiation story, you know, a transition story. But uh, I would just like to point out for viewers that if you, if you watch, you can notice a number of suggestions, perhaps the political violence that has been a part of the life of these individuals. For example, a house is broken into, somebody has broken into the water storage and, and uh, blocked one of the pipes. And of course, there's a scene where they pass by a police car that has stopped somebody along the side of the road. So the suggestions of kind of the political environment in which uh, Chile has lived is, is masked within the film, but it's also at the same time present in a certain way. Uh, but you're absolutely right, kind of talking about this uh, moment of transition. And I really liked the film in large measure because it's about individuals and groups as they transition from one point in life to another. And although there seems to be one primary character, who is Sophia, who's a 16-year-old character, obviously an important transitional moment in life, the film really doesn't uh, privilege her over other individuals. And so you see another girl who's probably about 10 years old. You see another boy who's, again, about probably 16, 15, 16, 17 years old, and then adults. And so you've got this wide 
almost panoramic view of different stages of life uh, that just becomes uh, a beautiful examination of moments of transition and moments of vacillation and moments of struggle. Yeah, and I think something that I enjoyed about it, although I not I know not everyone probably loves this kind of film, but is the kind of slice of life aspect to the film that you're really left wondering deep into the film, what is it, you know, both metaphorically as, as well as literally that I'm supposed to be looking at? You know, there are things going on kind of on multiple planes of, you know, of action. And, you know, what's, what's the main story here? What's the, you know, what's the main focus supposed to be? And it doesn't mind creating a certain ambiguity in that respect and that it wants us to see all of these things. It wants us to see them kind of interacting with each other. Uh, Sophia's reacting in one way. Lucas is reacting in another way. You know, Clara is looking for her dog. They're all happening at the same time and they're woven into each other, I think, in really interesting kinds of ways, reinforcing in some uh, ways the, the message, but but not in all ways, sometimes working against each other and even in different directions. Yeah, absolutely. I, I like that point because I, I have read a review or two that uh, seem to suggest that these are all characters that we should like, or at least Clara and, uh, and Sophia are characters that you know, are, are clearly positive. I actually saw the film as, as very ambiguous and, and I love that ambiguity to the film. The reality is that uh, Sophia is an amazing character with an amazing acting job done by the, by the lead. But at the same time, they're characters that are self-destructive in many ways and that frequently are not shown being productive in life. The fact that you know it's during the school break means that there is some work going on in the background, but at the same time, these feel like characters that are unfinished, unpolished, unproductive, and at times you want them to be more than they are. But at the same time, I, I think there's a real reason to celebrate characters who aren't mythic who aren't romanticized who aren't perfect right they're 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 kind of like us yeah, <laughs> right you're me right and, and and i really think that um uh, that another point that you make is one of the amazing things of this film and that is that it is about looking right mm-hmm. there's not a lot of action in this film it's hard to decide you know what is the plot line really this is about seeing that slice of life that you mentioned and just these static uh, little uh, scenes become the joy and the beauty of this film. If you're just willing to see and watch other characters see each other, right? Which frequently the camera lingers on somebody looking at one of the other characters and and it just becomes a, a visual exploration and exercise that I found to be fascinating. Well, there are so many interesting shots where the the camera is following over the shoulder of the kids as they're wandering through the woods or, you know, this kind of, yeah, that invites us to be be present in a way. Sometimes the camera very much dictates to us the way that we're supposed to see something. Um, And I felt that 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 wasn't the case in this film, that it was very much trying to allow us to build empathy or, or sympathy with, you know, the characters that we're that we're seeing. Um, but not in an intrusive and you know prescriptive kind of way, right? And and I think that the, the the cinematography is amazing. But if we go back to the political aspect of the film, 
and just realize that this is a film made by a director who would be celebrating uh, right. Chile's return to democracy and the demise of Pinochet. And yet the film doesn't force us to see one political reality. Yeah, and that's a good point. That, that open nature of the film is is remarkable. Uh, you know, the film, No, I love that film. It's an amazing film. If you haven't seen it, you should. But that film very clearly, you know, tells us who we should be rooting for. This film is much more ambiguous. What, what are some of the other stylistic things that you notice going on in this film? One for me, you know, just to kind of start this off, is the, the use of a kind of what are almost described as kind of a static frame where characters have to move into the frame. You know, this opening scene in the car, for example, where the kids are all piling in the car to go to the last day of school, our camera doesn't move and the characters have to move into that. And it's this very, very long take, you know, that kind of gives this, again, this kind of slice of, of reality. Are, are there other things like that that stand out to you as, as distinctive in this film? Yeah, in fact, I would have to say that the uh, opening sequence to the film is my favorite. <laughs> yeah, no, it really stuck out to me too. It's so natural, right? I mean, it just feels like this isn't acting, this is reality. And I yeah. love the fact that the camera is also uh, letting us look through the windshield that clearly needs to be washed. Right? <laughs> That's right. You know, and it's kind of telling us, you know, from that very first moment, that, uh, that this film is blurry, you know, that things aren't necessarily clear. Um, but I, I really did like as well the static camera and that uh, sometimes, you know, the camera just holds there and characters move in and out of the sequence and we don't really know necessarily what we should be looking at, which has mm -hmm. allowed us to look at everything. And if I point out two scenes that I really liked quite a bit from a formalist standpoint, uh, one of them is on the paved road that then turns into a dirt road that leads to this kind of uh, commune outside of uh, Santiago, where all of these characters live. The, on the side of the road, almost invisible, unless you're really looking as the car drives down the road, which is the dominant of the scene, you notice there's a woman working in the shadows. And my guess is that most people who see this movie and see this particular scene won't notice that character. Uh, but for me, and I only saw it on the second time through the movie, it was a revelation, right? That in this film, there are things to see that are hidden in the shadows and yeah. to look for them. And the other scene that I really liked uh, one of the characters is an artist and she has just painted a, a painting and she has it uh, up against a table and so that they can look at it. And then the camera just lingers kind of on this painting and outside the house, the trees are moving in the wind. And so the painting, uh, the shadows of those leaves and branches kind of move slightly across this painting, which suggests that this painting isn't static. It's actually moving. And in a lot of respects, that's what this movie is, right? It's a still shot yeah. that has some slight movements within it. And if we're willing to appreciate the static nature of the imagery and look for those moments of movement, then you'll find the beauty in the everyday that I think is a part of this film. Yeah. Well, great. Doug, thank you so much for, for being with us to talk about this film and to share your insights. Thank you. And I hope people will go uh, see this film. It's, uh, it's uh, quite a bit of fun.